Kieran. I'm Hannah. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hey, Kieran. Hey, Hannah. How's it going? It's going. I did the essay. I finished it like two hours before class. And I got there, and then the professor was like, yeah, so I'm collecting them next Wednesday. What a loser. I'm so, I'm so angry. (laughs) My entire class was so angry because we'd all, like, crammed over the three-day weekend to get this done. (laughs) And because the library wasn't free on Wednesday, it's due next week. Gross. Yeah. So Um... that was, that was yesterday. I just submitted 25 pages about courtship and Grove City dating drama. So <laughs> we'll see what my little writing tutorial group thinks of that. That should be really exciting. My essay, I made a narrative about the day my parents decided to homeschool me. And it was excruciating to write because I was like, the meat of the story is not in the details about like the ants on the sidewalk. <laughs> but what you want is the ants on the sidewalk. So, fine. so we're gonna we're gonna talk about this later, right? Yes, this will be a thing later. Okay, good. Um, well, speaking of Grove City, um, my friend Emily is going to join us. Emily, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Emily Mosswood. I met Hannah at Grove City when we were freshmen. We were both English majors, and I am um, still a friend of Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> and I work in communications um, for nonprofits as a consultant. And then we have one other special guest this evening, um, Chris. Uh, hi. Yeah, this is Chris Stroop, um, ex-evangelical writer and uh, scholar and Twitter personality <laughs> with a PhD in Russian history. What are we all here to talk about? Yeah, I was just going to ask you, why are we here? What happened? <laughs> what, what happened? What? I don't know. Some Christians were dumb on the internet again. again. <laughs> oh Somebody God. is wrong on the internet. Somebody is wrong on the internet, and we need a panel to deconstruct it because <laughs> they are extremely wrong on the internet. I'm, I'm like, Emily and I are talking about this before you guys got on, but we, we feel a little guilty about bringing attention to this because it's like not a lot of people have picked up on this story yet. And that should probably be where it stays, but it's so bad. So if we bring extra attention to it um, to make sure everybody knows how bad it is, that's great. But also, if we bring extra attention to it, I feel guilty about that. <laughs> I was thinking a little bit about that as, as well, because, you know, this is not exactly the Nashville statement, right? It, it's not your A-list, like, superstar celebrity pastors. But on the other hand, it, it is people with some influence, um, people affiliated with various ministries, uh, Founders Ministries seems to have organized it. And um, I think this is actually a remarkable document in a way for how very explicit it is relative to at least, you know, some other evangelical texts, particularly about race. So, you know, yeah. it's it's really a kind of important piece of evidence for linking evangelicalism to uh, to white supremacy in America. Yeah, I think that that yes. is probably why this is super valuable. It's like my experiences in the South versus in California, and I know this is going to be controversial, but having grown up half in California and half in Richmond, Virginia, 
I find that in Richmond, people are very, very racist, but they're not very overt about it. And so it's hard to pin them on it. Um, and the racists I met in California were much more open about it because they didn't have this culture of like hiding it and playing nice. And like the, the social niceties around it were um, less ingrained. And so this is really nice for us to have in terms of documentation because we have evidence <laughs> of all these things that we knew to be true for forever. Um, and now they've just... They're just it. signing their names on it. They're like, yes, this is the thing. Exactly. We were working on this for like a year and then they just tweeted it out. <laughs> it's like I was scouring the internet for like, here, look, they said the thing and it's just it's just there. There's signatures on it. It's everywhere. That's so nice. So, um, y'all, why don't you break down who's in this? Who who is this uh document written by? Um, so the first name that stood out to me was James White, um, because he is at least currently the director of Alpha and Omega Ministries, which uh, is the homeschool curriculum that I had from the time I was in fifth grade until I graduated. So they run a huge publishing company and are hugely influential in like the homeschool community because of the workbooks that they create. Some private the schools other... use their their stuff. I've seen their materials everywhere. Yeah, they're surprisingly mainstream. And so this dude is on like the core founding group of the people who signed this is writing writing the books that your children are educated by. Who's the who them. is the other name? The other one was Vadi Bakum, which is um a black quiverful pastor dude person who my parents were fans <laughs> of when they discovered him. And it was like the only person that they'd seen mirrored at the time who was Quiverful and believed like they did. Mm. So I was just like, oh yeah, my parents' favorite Quiverful dude <laughs> right up here. Um, John MacArthur stood out to me, and that's probably the name that would stand out to um, you know a pretty large number of people as um, there have been some scandals surrounding um, the Master's University, speaking of California, you know. Where, Isn't it the Master's College? Um, is it college or I university? Think it was, I, think I think it's the Master's College. I believe it was changed to the Master's University. Oh, creeping on him today. That's what I found out. Everybody's becoming a university now. Asbury's a university, you know. (laughs) Okay, so they upgraded their master's university. But anyway, I mean, he's also a radio personality. He's president of that university. And so, you know, he's all, I guess he's an A-lister. He's also um, a big name for Bible commentaries. Like you see his name in... Um, various editions of the Bible published. It, Crossway Books, I believe, coordinates with him, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Books. Yeah, and he has, there's a John MacArthur study Bible. He, he's mm-hmm. got top billing among the signers. I'm looking at the social justice statement page now, uh, which doesn't surprise me because I figure he's probably the most well-known celebrity among these names. I mean, I don't know if anyone else is really an evangelical celebrity exactly. It depends mm-hmm. on what circles you run in. Um, anyone else jump out to you guys from the founders? Only because of Twitter, this guy Justin Peters, he's a he's a huge asshole, and I've been <laughs> <laughs> and I've been watching him argue with people in recent days, and I've been watching uh, Tory Douglas, for example, try to kind of school him on racism, and he's totally denying that there's he's ever seen any racism in any of his churches. 
Uh, it's it's he's white, right? Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. Oh, and he recently, you know, started really pushing back and kind of trolling. And he he introduced um, this white dude who actually, you know, literally fought in um, the so-called police anti-terror unit in Rhodesia uh, as his African-American Whoa. friend. He said African-American friend, you know, for a guy who. For oh, a guy who fought on behalf of apartheid and then became a pastor in Florida. Oh my God. He's still alive. Yeah. So you're going to send us a link to that so we can include it in the footnotes for this uh, episode, yeah, right? Yeah, I can, I can do that. <laughs> Nate Sparks just did a thread on, uh, on this guy's background with wow. Rhodesia. I mean, we were, we were looking into it last night. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's take a quick break and then we're going to start doing a, a code switching translation of, you know, what this statement says and the dog whistles that are embedded in it. So, Kieran. Yes. I I hear you have a joke. Yeah. So I was reading I was reading the statement this morning, and I was getting really angry, and uh, I was I was venting to my friends about it, and one of my friends was like, "So how do we get these people to do another Jonestown?" And I was like, "Well, they have communion every Sunday." Cyanide and happiness has a completely new meaning. Oh my god. <laughs> so, well, uh, I, I saw in replies on Twitter about the social justice statement when I guess it was in the replies of a thread by Justin Peters, who was promoting it the other day, uh, someone saying that the gospel is a hill worth dying on. And I couldn't help saying, you know, yeah, you all go ahead and die on that hill, you know, and there won't be any evangelicals left after that because the youth are rejecting the gospel of bigotry. Gospel of bigotry. All right. Well, let's uh, let's deconstruct this gospel of bigotry. Um, they have they have all of these talking points. They have a couple blog posts that they wrote um, in addition that kind of frame the statement. And then they go through in your classic like creed style they affirm something and then they deny something um the blog posts are so self-important too i just gotta say that they're like ridiculous <laughs> on june 19th of this year i had the privilege of meeting in the iconic herb's house coffee shop in dallas with 13 other men to discuss our common concerns about some teachings and practices just being advocated in the name of social justice just, and it's in quotation marks. just to be clear <laughs> this guy wasn't meeting at a coffee house with a woman because that might no. look bad that would violate the Billy Graham that rule. That would violate... Or the Mike Pence I rule. Mean, what are we calling it? The Billy it Graham now? rule, the Mike Pence rule, <laughs> the mother rule. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what do you what do you see? Let's, like, start at the beginning. Like, the, the, this blog post about it um, that they give off um, by John MacArthur called no, no Division in the Body is really 
I think probably the most interesting place to start. I was reading, just to be clear, one from uh, Tom Askell. But yeah, you go ahead and um, talk about John McCarthy. Yeah, so I think it's a, it's a, it's a good preview for what we're going to get. Um, it talks about um, racism, encoded language. It talks about victim mentality, encoded language. And it gives a super sketchy definition of intersectionality, which, like, I am studying... Uh, women in social movements right now for an elective at my school and we're like going through Kimberly Crenshaw's definition of intersectionality and this is not the definition of intersectionality (laughs) (laughs) what's his definition well it's in the footnotes of this um, article let me pull it up and we can read it um the definition that he gives for intersectionality is the idea that victimhood and oppression occur on a variety of levels, and these may overlap or intersect. So a single individual may have multiple claims to victim status. Since victimhood is what is supposed to validate a personal opinion in these postmodern times, the more layers of oppression someone can claim, the more entitled that person is to speak about issues such as justice and racial discrimination, power and oppression, privilege and inequality. In other words, victimhood is now seen as empowerment, and the more privilege a person is thought to enjoy, the less authority that person has to render an opinion. You guys are all making faces like you're about to puke. I just... Oh my god. I... I mean, that's that's what I was taught. I mean, not not that explicitly. Like, they, they didn't have that much like thought around it but like that's what i grew up in and it's awful and horrifying seeing it written out on like the internet okay so here's what i don't get the the whole idea of suffering for the sake of the gospel and uh like the more you are a victim for the sake of what you believe the more empowered you are and, like, the more, like, reward you'll get in heaven. Isn't that, like, a, a tenant of Christian faith? Like, how does this... Why Why are they pushing yeah. back on that? Because it's not... Because you're not suffering for God. You're not suffering for being too Christian. So it's a bad... So it's, like, you're just... Whatever. It's not holy. So it doesn't matter. Because gotcha. my parents were also very much of the, like, no, we must the most... We have to be the most persecuted person around. Like, that's what's holy and good is we have to be the most persecuted and be suffering the most and we make choices to ensure that and that was fine and holy but like if actual tragedy happened to someone and they needed help like well they're just terrible well and i think that kind of goes along with like this whole subculture that is really unspoken of the bootstraps americana mindset of like well if you're poor it's because you didn't work hard enough yeah I mean, and then basically a bunch of the statement goes on to reiterate that. Um, Let me just read. In different words. (laughs) The definition of intersectionality um, that Kimberly Crenshaw, like, created. Like, she's, she and the, um, there's a a collective, a feminist collective that came together, um, women of color, and they, they have put together this definition um, and really have founded a lot of the work around intersectionality in um, social theory. So intersectionality, this is the actual definition, is an analytic framework 
which attempts to identify how interlocking systems of power impact those who are most marginalized in society. Intersectionality considers that various forms of social stratification, such as class, race, sexual orientation, age, disability, and gender, um, I think it just basically might interact. So it's like the lines where like you are placed in society based on your education and the money your parents have and the amount of privilege your skin color gives you and like all of these moments um of like realizing where your limits are socially because of where you come from um and how they like place you in the middle of this grid um and it's not something you can necessarily overcome like a lot of that is like predetermined by the biases within society, the systemic oppressions that um, society is built on. Um, so it's not about, like, getting a prize to, like, be able to have authority to talk about something. Um, this statement sounds like a white dude got told by a black woman to shut up and listen. Yes. And he decided to go give himself biblical just definitions or justification to, like, talk back instead of sitting down and listening. Yeah, I was thinking that, too, while you were reading the actual definition of intersectionality, that his definition seems very much like a whiny white guy who, like, has just been told his opinion isn't God's gift to Earth. <laughs> Um, and just a, just like a footnote here for our our self-proclaimed feminist listeners, like you can't say you're an intersectional feminist. Like intersectional is a lens by way you like orient yourself in the world. It doesn't mean like it's not an identity. It's not something you can claim. Right. It's just like you understand that sometimes these systems bump into each other and have like doubled ramifications. Everything stacks. That's all. Um, so, Chris, you want to talk about the finer points in this statement? Uh, sure. I mean, I think when you immediately look at the, at the statement itself and just look at the way they, they introduce it, there's something very interesting there. You know, in view of questionable sociological, psychological, and political theories presently permeating our culture and making inroads into Christ's church, we wish to clarify certain key, key Christian doctrines and ethical principles prescribed in God's word. Uh, that's, that's very striking to me because it seems to be presenting a dichotomy between sociology and psychology and Christianity, you know, which, and I think the reason that is, is because they're so set on reading the Bible literally, um, without any sort of historical context for any passages, without any sort of cultural analysis, um, for themes that come up, like, they want to be able to take the Bible as it is and just cut and paste to apply to everyday life here. Um, but you can't read that document without understanding the context in which it was written. And they're trying to um, double down on that point. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's no consistent way to read the Bible entirely, literally anyway, or, or to try to. Everybody picks and chooses, right? So the mm -hmm. further you read down through that statement, the more evident it becomes that what they really desperately want to defend at all costs is white supremacist patriarchy. And if psychology and sociology are a threat to that, then psychology and sociology be damned. 
Let's talk about this idea of racism biblical. You've got the Imago Dei statement in point two, which says, We deny that God-given roles, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, religion, sex, or physical condition, or any other property of a person either negates or contributes to that individual's worth as an image bearer of God. So that's trying to set up the, the yes, all lives matter. Yeah, exactly. It sounds very, it sounds very nice, right? It kind of sounds like, uh, you know, Paul saying in Christ there is neither Jew nor free, uh, Jew nor free, Jew nor Greek, uh, male nor female, slave nor free. Um, mm-hmm. But in the context of actual sociological realities, um, you know, this kind of supposed equality is actually erasing a lot of inequalities. It's not, it's not a robust notion of equity. Right. And I think one of the things to keep in mind with this statement is like all of these signers are the kind of people who've had a lot of privilege in their lives. Um, All of these people who've written this are coming from the position of um, having to recognize their privilege and if they want to like and step aside to give like space to other voices. um, That's when you when you have all the power. Equality feels like oppression. Yep. Um, so as soon as you start like handing over your privilege to actually level the playing field, field they they feel like they're losing control and losing their resources. So that's part of why I think this doubling down is happening. Yeah, the statement, kind of to reiterate what Chris said, is written so it sounds an awful lot like it doesn't matter what you look like or where you come from, but what it actually means is you can't count any of these things as something that affects you. Should we all break into Michael W. Smith colorblind now? (laughs) Why can't we be colorblind? (laughs) Right, because all lives matter, guys. So, you know, you don't have any reason to be butthurt about this because Jesus loves you just as much as he loves me. So why are you complaining? Yeah, obviously (laughs) there's nothing stacked against you. The field is already level because this doesn't matter because it doesn't affect me. It's it's slick to start that way, though, because, I mean, this sounds pretty innocuous. A lot of people are not going to pick up on anything until you get deeper. Mm -hmm. Right, and that's why we're trying to unpack it because there's a lot of hell in here. Uh, Point three is about justice. Um, True justice can be culturally defined. Standards of justice are merely socially constructed, can be imposed on this with the same authority as those that are derived from scripture. I think it's really interesting. They're picking up on the language, right? Mm -hmm. They're using the term social construct. Like, Oh, they're they're denying it. I mean, that's under the denial, but yeah, right. But the, but they're saying that they they're acknowledging that like standards of justice can be socially constructed, and therefore we're denying it. Like they're acknowledging it. They're using the language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're acknowledging it. They're giving that ground to that definition. They're using these terms, um, which makes them seem woke. <laughs> right. Um. If you're just reading this at a cursory glance, you wouldn't pick up on that. Because, like, John MacArthur is using the word social construct. Right, that's what stood out to me, too, is I was like, a lot of this is the language that we're using in the discourse, and they're using it to then, like, be like, this is fake, but they're also using it, which doesn't mean nothing. Right. Who who is known? I mean, I've known so many guys who've done this, whereas, like, as soon as I, they start interacting with me, and... 
understanding feminism a little bit, they start, like, using all of the labels incorrectly to try to, like, beat me up with right. it. To keep me in line. It's really, it's really common. And this idea of justice has to be defined by the Bible and defined by scripture. What are the, like, these definitions of biblical righteousness? Like, what are the kinds of things that are implied by this statement? Right. Well, Hannah, I think it goes back a lot to what you were saying about how American Christians are functioning without historical context. So if you're reading your Bible without historical context and not seeing that, um, you know, things that, that Jesus did were extremely radical and extremely justice-oriented and extremely scandalous, um, if you don't see that, then you, then you can just throw out the social context of the Bible and then keep saying that you, the social context doesn't matter, right? Because if it didn't matter then, it doesn't matter now. You just deprive, right. you just pull it. All of us are existing, like you said, in a historical vacuum. Right. So, for example, like Paul sent Onesimus back to his owner. Like, there's a letter in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is sending a slave back to his owner to apologize for running away. Like, that's in the New Testament. That's that's New Covenant stuff. And so that's the, that's justice, according to Scripture. Yeah, I mean, when you read, we affirm that societies must establish laws to correct injustices that have been imposed through cultural prejudice. Um, that sounds like maybe they're supporting affirmative action or something. But, you know, I don't think they are. Um, <laughs> presumably, there may be trying to get credit for supporting the end of slavery. I mean, we see a lot of conservative Christians these days, Eric Metaxas recently on Twitter, claiming that it was evangelicals who somehow did the civil rights movement, like all by themselves without even black people, you know. Er but uh, Eric Metaxas <laughs> has always been really bad at history. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, bad for the he, brand. he thinks that Dietrich Bonhoeffer's main concern was abortion. Um, which he wrote like it wasn't. He, he wrote like one paragraph on it, so obviously that's the hermeneutic key to his entire corpus. Um, oh my goodness! I had but, no idea. You know, anyway, um, this whole thing about correcting injustices that have been imposed through cultural prejudice, I think, reads a lot differently when you realize, and we do have the public opinion polls on this, that white evangelicals consider themselves to be sort of the most persecuted and oppressed demographic in America. Like they think that they're discriminated against more than Muslims. I mean, like, sometimes people don't say Merry Christmas. God, how awful. <laughs> Kieran, you, your family was particularly strong in this point. You want to speak to that perspective? Oh, about wanting to be the most persecuted all the time? It, it's a contest, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, no, my parents, so like... they have to hide their power level. Yeah. Like, my parents bragged about, like, being below the poverty level. They saw everything as like like being as as perpetually suffering as you could be meant you had more like points in heaven so like the more that you sacrifice the more that you gave up the more like homes that we had lost to foreclosure because we were paying someone's rent like the more we would be rewarded in heaven so my parents if there was ever a time that we weren't persecuted they were like oh my god we're doing something wrong right weren't you yeah and that's 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 where I'm kind of getting at with the these these people who uh, they, if you're disagreeing with them on Twitter with this like Christian pastor or whatever that proves them they're right. They're gonna double down because like yeah, God is affirming my decision by allowing me to experience the blessing of persecution. Right. Yeah, and my parents would often 
like seek that out like they would make those situations happen i think we've covered a lot of the next point point four god's law um but if anybody has anything to add this is i think this is setting up this is this is laying the ground for reminding everybody that scriptural literalism is important so that we can tell the gays to go fuck off later right because then we go into the next point we go into the next point where that's the first thing so gay people don't exist oh wait neither do trans people by the way heads up you guys i don't exist you're i'm in. not i'm fake am i you're hallucinating not hearing you? me right now yes this is a hallucination that everyone is participating in right now <laughs> me. i don't Kinda really like exist christ on the road to damascus Ooh, i think he was doing mushrooms <laughs> not talking to it a makes trans so person. much more sense if you like read it with like oh these people are on drugs <laughs> like that one story in the old testament with like the bones dancing i'm like he was just tripping balls like <laughs> that's it i i dated someone for a bit who was like yeah, you know, every religion just started because somebody hallucinated on something at some point <laughs> and nobody else had done it, so they believed him. Yeah, so gay people. So um, all people are connected to Adam, both naturally and federally. Now, this is great because <laughs> later they say... Federally. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? Okay. Any person <laughs> is, we deny that any person is morally culpable for another sin. So I am born with a sin nature because Adam sinned. Born but this way. I cannot be held responsible for the fact that some of my ancestors might at some point have participated in like owning slaves in the United States. This entire point contradicts itself like eight different times. It's kind of beautiful. It's it's it says one thing, and it's like, but not this thing, but then exactly that thing, like four times. And I'm I like I was trying to make sense of it. I mean, but really, they the just Bi want to show gay people. The Bible itself both says that you know children are punished for the sins of their parents, and that they're not. So you know. So which verse know? are you going to listen to today? <laughs> it's going to be different tomorrow. It depends on how angry you are at the person. I <laughs> just want somebody and how much you like them <laughs> if any of our listeners are like true grammar nerds I would really love to have someone diagram 0.5 like the sin section and like see if you can do it because it really doesn't hold together it's so hard it's so hard to read so this is kind of largely saying that I think th I think what this this goes back to is this very classic white modern liberal idea of my grandparents were racist my great parent grandparents were racist because everybody back then was racist but like i haven't actively oppressed also my grandparents person. were still very good people my grandparents tied they were teachers they gave to the community they volunteered at the library and sure sure they said the n-word but like didn't everybody um so this, 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 this section, like, you cannot be held collectively guilty for your ancestors' sins, is really trying to say, I haven't actively oppressed any black people, so why should I repent of being racist? Yeah. Why and except I for care? Adam's sin, which conveniently applies to everyone equally. Yeah. Aren't black right. people sinners, too? It's, it's really bad. Yeah, I call this section the, but I didn't own slaves starter kit. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. The Jesus edition. That's, yes. Emily, what was it that your husband said earlier today about this whole statement? Oh, one second. I will find it. Was it was good. I wrote, I wrote it down. He said, according, I think, I believe he said, according to this, Jesus was a distraction from the gospel. <laughs> it's amazing. Because of his service. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously. So, section six is the gospel. (laughs) (laughs) Classic fundamentalism with an extra helping of substitutionary atonement. Again, like, let's look. Make this look so familiar that everybody else just breezes by all the other pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this is like your spot of like quote unquote normalcy to keep everybody. Satiated. It's like, well, that last one was a bit odd, so here's a palate cleanser. <laughs> this one's pretty basic. All What's right. the next one? So the next Salvation. one. Salvation. Salvation. I mean, that one's also kind of... This is... um, The last sentence is really the one that gets to me. We further th- deny that ethnicity excludes anyone from understanding the gospel, nor does anyone's ethnic or, or cultural heritage mitigate or remove the duty to repent and believe. So there's, there's two pieces in this, um, if you want to translate this. One is doubling down on colonialism and colonial missionary work. Like, every culture is invalid and is obligated to repent of their sins, like, no matter what their religion of origin is. Like, missionary work yep. is still super valid, even if colonialism is not in vogue anymore. Some cultures just suck because they're not Christian. I know. It's so disappointing. Like They really should know, know better. Right. They need our help. Let's all go build a school and make people wear clothes. Anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're scared of tits. Um, the, other, the other half of this is, is saying that um, I think that there's no reason to allow someone's experience of oppression to prevent you from continuing to try to colonialize them with the gospel. Yeah. Like, doesn't matter if we've, like, oppressed this people and committed genocide. They still need Jesus because they're still wrong. Right. There's no reason to reevaluate or take a step back or, God forbid, apologize to someone. Let he who is without genocide cast the first stone. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Well, I'm leaving the field... The church, point eight. Again, a kind of a palate cleanser, kind of classic fundamentalism. This is this is what gets to me is the the first half. The we affirm mm-hmm. is traditional, almost all of the time. It's the we deny statement. That's that what that's that what got gets me. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you see in this one, guys? I mean, under we affirm, there are a couple of interesting parts, right? Yeah, the obedience, right? Um, yeah. We affirm that when the primacy of the gospel is maintained, that this often has a positive effect on the culture in which various social ills are mollified. So the only way to to address social ills is just preach the gospel. We affirm that under the lordship of Christ, we are to obey the governing authorities established by God and pray for civil leaders. Makes me think of Jeff Sessions invoking Romans 13 to uh, justify putting brown kids in cages. Well, and like, you know, as soon as like someone in leadership did something that they deemed God 
didn't approve of, they would be like, well, we're supposed to resist the government if it's against God because God's law is higher. Yeah, like like being like being black. Can someone and right. please tweet Eric Metaxas about this point and like check him on? <laughs> but Bonhoeffer tried to kill the governing authorities. <laughs> um. <laughs> That part's irrelevant. Well, he tried to kill I, the wrong ones. You know, he should have waited for Barack Obama, oh, the Antichrist. God. Um, yeah, that's right. He was born in hell. Um, so you, this this sets this last sentence in the we affirm the obedience to governing authorities really sets the stage for the the law section later. Um, that really gets heinous. Um, it's it's beautifully constructed. I will give them that. Um, how about the we deny section? What do you have? Yeah, so the we deny is interesting because well, I'm just gonna read it because it'll be it'll yeah, make sense that it. way. We deny that political or social activism should be viewed as integral components of the gospel or primary to the mission of the church. Though believers can and should utilize all lawful means that God has providentially established to have some effect on lo- the laws of a society. We deny that these activities are either evidence of saving faith or constitute a central part of the church's mission given to her by Jesus Christ, her head. I forgot that the church was her. Um, <laughs> why do we gender this? Oh, totally. Anyway. Bright of yeah. We deny that laws or regulations possess any inherent power to change sinful hearts. So basically, they're trying to deny that a theocratic takeover of the government is part of their plot. I think they're also trying to say that participating in the Antifa and Black Lives Matter are like valid expressions of faith. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's more what I see. I mean, and then we deny that laws or regulations regulations possess any inherent power to change sinful hearts. That doesn't mean you don't want to have uh, you know, Christian laws and regulations. Right. They're they're like it's actually really interesting because they're treading this fine line of like, well, we don't condone political acts, but we don't condemn them condemn them either. So basically what you're saying, this is like the poor people who vote Republican because they support not taxing the rich because what if they're gonna be rich one day? Yes. Okay. So this is the <laughs> Christians who are voting against their interests because they want to have power someday. Yeah, there's a whole other, I think, subtext here too, though, which is that, you know, if you deny that laws or regulations possess any inherent power to change sinful hearts, you're saying only God can change people's sinful hearts, right? This is an extremely dark view of human nature, which uh, leads precisely to support for a a kind of uh, authoritarian, punitive justice system. Because all those people who aren't going to be real Christians... They're not going to be kept under control any other way. Emily, what is what is the our local Anabaptists see in this? Do you see them supporting the death penalty with this statement? Anabaptists? No. <laughs> no, no, no. Do you see this statement as I'm saying you as an Anabaptist? What yeah. do you see in this statement? Do you see the statement as like affirming oh, the death penalty and stuff like that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think what you've said so far is true that um, it's used selectively, right? It's it's there when you want it. It's, it's convenient. You have to say both things so, so you can have it both ways. So when you want um, a consequence like death or war or lots of death for what you see as the as doing the wrong thing, then you have to give yourself the permission to do that. But then you also want to deprive other people of any kind of wiggle room to do what they wanted to do, right? So, mm-hmm. right, it's having it both ways. Yeah. 
I will say the nice, the one nice thing that this paragraph gives us is that if any um, violent pro-life protesters come out of any of these churches, we can say that they're heretics. Yes. That's not really any kind of bone, but it is an observation. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about heresy. Point nine. Chris, you want to take it off? What do you see? Um, hmm, let's have a look here. We further affirm that heresy often involves the replacement of key essential truths with variant concepts or the elevation of non-essentials to the status of essentials. So, you know, this is a kind of sort of harkens back to this idea that we just want to have the gospel and none of that, you know, social justice stuff, uh, which is obviously extraneous. Clearly. Um, to, to embrace heresy is to depart from the faith once delivered to the saints and thus be on a path towards spiritual destruction. Um, you know, this is kind of trying to establish extreme biblical authority, inerrancy, I suppose. I love the the phrase weight-bearing doctrines of the redemptive core of scripture. That <laughs> <laughs> That's the, like, best interpretation of the I'm the gluten-free person at the Thanksgiving buffet, so I'm going to avoid <laughs> stuffing because I don't like it. Like no, that is a cross to bear. Like this is a this is this is your classic. Like I am going to double down on my right to pick and choose from scripture yep. as biblical, and if you deny me that, you're a heretic. Well, and I mean that's that's basically what the deny statement is. Yeah. Um, and again, this is setting the stage for later statements, um, for what you can do with heretics. Like this is setting the stage for. Oh, I, this is so great because it's so contradictory, where it's this entire statement is a non-essential. Right, right. By their, by their <laughs> definition of non-essentials, which non-essentials, for those who are not familiar, um, like is co- it commonly used as like these doctrines that Christians can disagree on but still be Christians. So you, you talk about like infant baptism versus adult baptism or communion as transubstantiation or not. Um and these are things that are non-essentials. The things that are essentials are like we believe in God and the Trinity and Jesus died for our sins and we're all sinners and we all need Jesus to die for our sins so that we can repent and like receive his grace and the Holy Spirit will inhabit us. And, you know, anything that you find in like your classic Apostles Creed or Nicene Creed, those are the essentials. And that's why those creeds ex- exist. Um, this the statement on social justice is not a creed. So therefore it's a non-essential. But be by referencing non-essentials, they're covering their asses so that they can call this an essential later. Yeah. But Hannah, I think you're forgetting that Justin Peters tweeted that they didn't want to have to write this statement. They were forced to by all of us social justice assholes. Um, that's an acronym I haven't heard before. What is a social justice asshole? <laughs> well, that was my paraphrase. Oh, okay. Uh. <laughs> um, why, why do they hate social justice warriors, Chris? I mean, because they're, you know, shitty old straight white men who don't want to give up any power. Isn't this phrase like social justice warrior, like something that came out of MRA organiza- organizations and like chat groups? I think it probably does. The SJW as a slur probably does have its origins in the manosphere. I'm not 100% sure of that. 
Could be 4chan, could be Twitter. But I, I, remember, I remember it from Gamergate. Yeah, Gamergate. I remember seeing it around Gamergate with um, white dudes like really being resistant to anyone telling them what they couldn't say. Yeah, I mean, that happens a lot. Um, the whole ridiculous free speech obsession. Men on the internet. Let me see if I can find... Let me see if I can find this specific tweet. Um, I don't know if it has SJW in it, but yeah, that's how I was remembering mm -hmm. it. The intention was there. The implication <laughs> it was, it, was there. It, it was totally there. I think the... the, uh, the... Oh my god. Okay, but the next one, though. Okay. I just I just skipped ahead to the sexuality and marriage one. All right. And went to the part where they reject an entire subset of Christians. Let's let the hallucination <laughs> speak. So... Hi, welcome to the hallucination uh, time. The sexuality and marriage portion, um, first of all, I'm just going to read it. We affirm that God created mankind male and female, and that this divinely determined distinction is good, proper, and to be celebrated. So, sidebar, intersex people do not exist. No, no keep, keep going. The next sentence gets to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maleness and femaleness are biologically determined at conception and are not subject to change. So, they believe science says intersex people don't exist. I have Wrong! Mused. The curse of sin results in sinful, disordered affections that manifest in some people as same-sex attraction. Salvation grants sanctifying power to renounce such dishonorable affections as sinful and to mortify them by the spirit. So shame. It doesn't say... Uh, but hey, but hey, don't forget that sociology and psychology and presumably science in general are wrong when they don't agree with we the We only believe the DSM-1 right. that says it's disorder. We further affirm that God's design for marriage is that one woman and one man live in a one flesh covenantal sexual relationship until sex until sex <laughs> until separated by death. Wait, does that mean that they have to be permanently like quietly enjoined until they die? Or well, hey, they're they're not like dead Mormons. How does this one flesh thing work? I do not understand. I, I, I have, I, I, they didn't go into details. Was a, this Those was not part of my premarital counseling. Or opportunity for marriage are called to serve God in singleness and chastity. This is as noble a calling as marriage. That's the, that's the affirm. So they affirm, affirm that intersex and trans people do not exist. And that, uh, Queer people are just a result of sin. And if you really insist on doubling down on your queerness, the only way you can be a Christian is if you remain celibate forever. Right. Okay. And then, and then we get to denying. We deny that human sexuality is a socially constructed concept. We also deny that one's sex can be fluid. We reject gay Christian as a legitimate biblical category. We further deny that any kind of partnership or union can properly be called marriage other than one man and one woman in lifelong covenant together. We further deny, they say that twice, <laughs> that people should be identified as sexual minorities, in quotations, which serves as cultural cas classification rather than one that honors the image-bearing character of human sexuality as created by God. So they deny the existence of, gray, of gay Christians 
as existing at all. They deny anything outside of a heterosexual marriage as existing at all. And they deny that trans people exist. And this is where you see their like definition of law earlier play coming back. Um, they deny that a partnership or union can be called marriage. So it's basically saying if the government has decided to allow gay marriage, we won't recognize that. Yep. And we'll try very hard to get the government to not right. recognize it's, it's, that. It's right. covering their asses in case they get the chance to be in power and then they can reinforce their laws the way they want and be have it be consistent with this statement. Well, wasn't there like a bit where people wanted uh, one man, one woman as a constitutional amendment for marriage too? I oh, feel like I remember that I'm in like 2010. Yeah, I'm sure that was a th- that was like a thing because because Massachusetts had said you can't had like legalized gay marriage and then everyone lost it and they like campaigned for a constitutional amendment to say marriage was. Becoming I remember a this being something that was covered in World Magazine a whole lot when I was you know coming home for visits from Grove. So sorry, queer Christians. I guess you don't exist, but you can join the club because I also don't yeah, exist. Yeah, we're going to go party in hell. We're just the non-existent we're gonna club. We're going to party in hell. It's fine. We're, we'll send you a, a, like an invitation by owl or something, and it'll be fine. This is also just so un- unoriginal. I mean, why do you even need to deny that gay Christians exist after the Nashville statement? Apparently, they felt it needed to be reiterated. They really did. I found I found that tweet from Justin Peters from September 4th, where he says so sanctimoniously, none of us wanted to have to write this. We wish it had not been necessary, <laughs> but it is. I think this is I, the threat to be of you. our day to the gospel. I'm so grateful for all of the men who stood together to answer this threat and for all others, men and women who are with us. Bless his heart. He didn't say SJW. But he was thinking it. I think I think this is I think part of the reason they probably feel that is the Nashville statement didn't cover a lot of this stuff. And a lot of the Nashville statement signers are not signing this. They want to double down on the stuff that maybe they couldn't get into the Nashville statement. That's my speculation. I do want to point out that some of the superstars associated with the Nashville statement, though, absolutely believe things like feminism is heresy. And if you go through Russell Moore's own website, you'll find that that he has said that. But he has said that explicitly. Uh, And yet he's this media darling and everyone thinks he's this wonderful moderate man who just wants to be a nice Baptist and, you know, be able to discriminate in a nice way. Well, it's like... Mike Ferris is a nice, moderate man who also believes that gays don't exist at Patrick Henry College. I have news. I have some news. I have met them. I swear I wasn't tripping. Yeah, so so gay people don't exist, uh, just so we're all clear. Uh, next, next up, next up. Um, Complementarianism. I, yeah. I absolve myself from talking about this because otherwise I'm going to bust a gasket and talk for three hours. So, there <laughs> Oh my god, complementarianism. I mean, they're doubling down on the biology bullshit. Like, obviously, science is not on their side, but uh, God created mankind, both male and female, with inherent biological and personal distinctions between them, and that these created differences are good, proper, and beautiful. Though there is no difference between men and women before God's law or as recipients of his saving grace, we affirm that God has designed men and women with distinct traits and to fulfill distinct roles. So wait a minute, doesn't that mean there is a difference Hang between on. men They're and women? They're saying... <laughs> Don't apply logic. Like, look, I, I, 
I am attracted to people who have dicks, but this is saying that dicks are beautiful. And like, all right, has anybody seen one? <laughs> well, it didn't exactly say that dicks are beautiful. It said that, you know, these inherent differences, which might be understood in a very abstract and platonic way. Ooh, are be- but, Pla- are beautiful. but wasn't Plato a heretic? But yeah. But but again, also with the bioessentialism and the like, very binary. What do you do if you're intersex? You don't what? Jump off a cliff. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I've had crushes on people with penises, but I would tend to agree with you that they're not the most beautiful form of genital. Anyway. Uh, okay, <laughs> these differences are most clearly defined in marriage and the church but not irrelevant in other spheres of life. In marriage, the husband is to lead love and safeguard his wife, and the wife is to respect and be submissive to her husband in all things lawful. So she can only rebel if he's trying to make her break the law. Wait, does this mean that marital sex is illegal? I mean, marital rape? Because it doesn't exist because the woman is supposed to always be sexually available for her husband. And if she isn't, then oh, it's Oh, so fault. it's if he's trying to assassinate Barack Obama, then she can't submit to him? No, I think that's God-ordained. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> In the church, qualified men alone, which qualified men mean, like, I love that they're, this is, this is a callback to all of these statements about what qualifies a man to be a pastor. Um, yes. It means that, like, his wife has to be submissive to him. He has to be married, and he has husband to have, of but one wife, one wife, no rebellious, no children. rebellious children. So if any of his kids are gay, oh my god! <laughs> I just realized I disqualified my dad from being a pastor. Yes, by existing. <laughs> oh my goodness! I'm so proud. I'm so of you. proud of myself right now. Okay, my day got better. Okay, so qualified men alone are to lead as pastors, elders, bishops, and preach to and teach the whole congregation. We further affirm that the image of God is expressed most fully and beautifully in human society when men and women walk in obedience to their God-ordained roles and serve according to their God-given gifts. Which we all know what this means, right? Yeah, why don't you break it down? Yeah, so women are, uh, you know, to be homemakers who raise their children and serve their man and are available to him whenever he like wants and men are just basically supposed to be like the providers and i you know whatever uh i was recently (laughs) interviewing a historian of international adoption who looked at how whole international came about after the korean war and it was the first organization to really institutionalize international adoption in the united states and she told me about looking at their original application form to adopt a child from Korea. And there's so much complicated stuff here, but I'll just focus on, um, I mean, there's just a whole lot of like really weird details, but I'll just focus on this. The application form is like half a page long. It wanted the man's, the, the husband's name and job, the wife's name without job, because she was obviously supposed to be a homemaker. Mm. And then the rest of it was they were just supposed to write about their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if Holt liked it, here's a child from Korea. Holy shit. Who doesn't have American citizenship and won't get it because that was a loophole in the law that wasn't fixed until this century and it's not even totally fixed yet. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Let's, let me just pour one out for all of the dead children from that law. So the other thing that 
rem- this reminds me of is C.J. Mahaney, the founder, co-founder of Sovereign Grace Ministries, or now Sovereign Grace Churches, the group church group that I grew up in. Um, when he wrote his book on marriage, there's a a section where he talks about like the women must make themselves available to their men's men's their men at all times, and he has this aside where he talks about and he and. He talked about it in so many sermons. I've heard this man say these words so many times where he talks about how his wife had hip surgery. Oh, my God. And never denied him his needs. Wow, he's an asshole. That is so gross. And yet they're shocked. And shocked everybody's like. Abuse is prevalent in these and, churches. And everybody's like, wow, Carolyn is such a hero of the faith. Oh, my God. And he's like, my wife, who's beautiful, and I, who, whom I do not deserve. And we're like, no shit. Okay, um, Emily, you want to read the we deny section? We deny that the God-ordained differences in men's and women's roles disparage the inerrant spiritual worth or value of one over the other, nor do those differences in any way inhibit either men or women from flourishing for the glory of God. What the hell does that mean? What? Is that even a sentence? When they want to control people, it's it's always for their own good. It's for human flourishing. <laughs> oh right. So it's like it's like bonsai trees that can only flourish if they've been like broken and bound to each other. We're we're all not flourishing, just so just so you know. My life <laughs> you're lying if you say you're not. Right. My life sucks so much now that I'm not in the church and not having daily migraines and panic attacks and stuff. It's great. Now that I have guilt-free masturbation. Yeah, yeah now been, I can have you know. sex whenever I want if I want it. And it's like awesome. Except, you know, I don't exist. Right. <laughs> it's great being in <laughs> I thought you were experiencing being back in your body, Kieran. I thought I was too, and then well, I read that, this. That... And apparently I'm not. So, well, as as, um, as Tori said, reality? the happy phantom has no right to bitch. <laughs> All right. So, um, point seven: race and ethnicity. Oh, boy. oh God! <laughs> Who wants to read this pile of steaming crap? Uh, Emily hasn't read yet, or has, but very shortly. So I don't know if I want like a recording of my voice saying these words. We affirm. God made all people from one man. Though people often can be distinguished by different ethnicities and nationalities, they are ontological equals before God both in both creation and redemption. Race, in quotations, is not a biblical category, but rather a social construct that often has been used to classify groups of people in terms of inferiority and superiority. All that is good, honest, just, and beautiful in various ethnic backgrounds and experienced experiences can be celebrated as the fruit of God's grace. All sinful actions and their results, including evils perpetrated between and upon ethnic groups by others, are to be confessed as sinful, repented of, and repudiated. Presumably except for all the genocides that God ordained in the... But we're not supposed to repent of the sins of our fathers. Yeah, but this is an entirely separate point. So that one doesn't apply. It's on a different slide. No, it's the so same thing. Start over. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but racist. <laughs> Only some race of them faked. And the other ones don't. I was admiring the beauty of the weaving of this statement before, and I rescind all of those remarks. 
but this is definitely an interesting example of their appropriation of that use of language like social construct, you know? Because for them, that's like, yes, all lives matter. Yeah. Um, ethnic backgrounds can be celebrated as the fruit of God's grace, but, you know, but we all sinned. So, like, let's repent of it and just, like, wipe the slate clean. Yeah. We'll just forget all of the bad things that happened. It's fine. <laughs> I love that race is not a biblical category, even though it's absolutely in the Bible. Like, it is something that is talked about a whole lot and was used during the Civil War to justify race-based slavery. I mean, you can argue that, of course, in the historical context in the ancient world, they didn't have exactly the same concept of race as was developed through the, the Enlightenment and, you know, and then developed in um, the horrible race science of the 19th century and so forth, you know, that we have. The, right, which is why the legacy no of... Southern Baptists can sign the statement because otherwise they'd be like having to go back on the reasons that the Southern Baptist Church exists. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> if, if a Southern Baptist signs a statement, will he exist after, no, no, afterwards? No, no, they'll be in the ether like we are. Ooh, does that mean they'll be queer? Probably. <laughs> Danish is catching, you know. Watch out, Emily. Might catch it. <laughs> um, all right, we deny. We deny that Christians should segregate themselves into racial groups or regard racial identity above or even equal to their identity in Christ. We deny that any divisions between groups of people from unstated attitude of superiority to an, invert, to an overt spirit of resentment have any legitimate place in the fellowship of the redeemed. We reject any teaching that encourages racial groups to view themselves as privileged oppressors or entitled victims of oppression. While we are to weep with those who weep, we deny that a person's feelings of offense or oppression necessarily prove that someone else is guilty of sinful behaviors, oppression, or prejudice. They finally tell us how they really feel. So how much do you think that they paid Vadim Bakum to sign this statement as a black man? He's their token black dude friend. He's like, look, our black friend... Trump has, like, five black pastors. And Ben Carson. Like, I feel like it's kind of, like, like everyone has their token person. Like, the token gay, the token trans, the token black friend. Is it is it still true? I remember hearing this statistic in the 90s, but I don't know if that's actually the case today. But is it still true that, like, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America? As far as I know. Pretty much, yeah. So, let's talk about that, because that's a clear... <laughs> Christians do segregate themselves into racial groups. Yes, on yeah. Sunday. Note the from an unstated attitude of superiority to an overt spirit of resentment. So they're saying, okay, we white people shouldn't think we're superior because we're white. We're just superior because we're more Christian than other people. But you know, right. this this overt spirit of resentment is obviously uh, targeted at people who um, are you know seeking racial justice. Yep. I just, I just think, this is such a silly anecdote, but I just keep thinking about Aretha Franklin's homegoing service and how little I saw about it on social media from white Christians. Mm. Yeah. All of the people of color who I follow on social media were tweeting about it and posting about it and commentating and grandstanding and live watching and, like, they were present yep. for that. And the white people, like, didn't. 
pay attention at all. And that's just a, a like a clear illustration of how divided, racially divided the church in America is. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just our most recent like <laughs> factual evidence of it. But um, so if all these white guys are making this statement, what are they? What are they trying to absolve themselves of? Being Southern Baptists, which is perfectly good, perfect, nice thing to be. You know. Who cares that it was founded on the right of missionaries to be slave owners or slave owners to be missionaries? <laughs> um, I love that they're using the term social construct again to describe race. They're they're I mean, they're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Race is a social construct that is incredibly deeply ingrained in our society and systemically reinforced and must be yeah. fought against in order to change. But I guess if Jesus likes you, then like, it doesn't matter. So like, that's the right. only fix you need. Right. I mean, it's interesting. They use that in the affirm section, but then in the deny section, they, they dispense with privilege. You know, th- there's no such thing as like, yeah, privilege. It's, it's, it's not, it's not a real thing. <laughs> Yeah. But they used the term privilege before in the statement. Like in other statements, they've talked about privilege, like and used that term as like a real term. Yep. How is this different? Why is this different? Because they're because white people don't have privilege. Stop it. It it, it reads to me an awful <laughs> lot like they're trying to absolve themselves of something without admitting that they have yeah. anything to be right without admitting of. they had fault. Yeah. yeah. Myth think the lady doth protest too much. Right, it's finally... Like, we're not racist. The people who are angry at us for being racist are racist. We deny that a person's feelings of offense or oppression necessarily prove that someone else is guilty of sinful behaviors, oppression, or prejudice. Right. Like, so if you think someone's being racist to you, that doesn't mean they're racist, is basically what they're saying. I was just going to say, these are the people that demand that other people perform their trauma for them like prove to me that these things have happened to you so that i can take you seriously and think about doing something for you and then they reject all the evidence that is submitted right you know moving they move the goalposts emily i i know this is i i don't if you're not comfortable talking about this don't but like i know this is something that you've had to deal with a lot lately with your your lyme diagnosis um and with something as mild as that like how do you feel how what kind of things have you experienced that make you see this in an interesting light right right so even as someone with um i mean a decent amount of like privilege and social capital if you show up and say this thing is wrong or people are hurting me or this thing is hurting me and i need your help people demand that you like explain everything to them and it's just this emotional i just leave those encounters feeling so drained and um it's just kind of stress that like it it it's, gets stuck in your body you know what i mean and just your whole body reacts to it. and i think that's for me just such a tiny picture into what people have lived with their whole lives and for me this has been what 15 months with this like grating on me and yeah. for other people it's been their whole lives right and that's your experience as a college educated white woman right and and if i in the church in like in a church that accepts you as like someone who's like on the worship team and involved and committed and like your parents have been there and you've proven your your commitment you're not new and with a decent amount of over-the-counter pain meds i can show up as someone without an illness you know yeah 
you can you can so pass this normal i can i can numb it right right to perform yeah so if that's the case for someone like you mm-hmm. how much worse does it get the further you get into this i mean this is this is what my whole op-ed on divorce was about where it's uh, these churches require abused women abused partners to prove their abuse and to prove the validity of their pain and to perform their pain for other people in order to be recognized as being worthy of a quote unquote biblical divorce. Right. This sentence and that's just cruel Mm -hmm. and unfair. Right. This sentence basically says that like Jesus thinks that the default position of the church should be skepticism toward people who say they're being hurt, especially by the church. Which is like so not the thing that Jesus actually exemplified at all. So like, let's, what did Jesus actually (laughs) exemplify? Let's just remind ourselves for a second. What did Jesus? Because he was the dude who saw people stoning a woman and stood up for her. He was the guy who had a Samaritan woman saying, my kids are hungry. And he was the guy who said, who had a woman say, I'm bleeding for 12 years and healed her. And the guy who's, who like an oppressor came to him and was like, my manservant is dying. And he healed the manservant. Like he was helping these okay, people. Okay, I'm gonna be a buzzkill here and say that. And Please say that be he a buzzkill. You know, is said to have said things like, "Let the me- let the dead bury their own dead," and um, you know, anyone who does not hate his mother and brother cannot follow me. Called a Samaritan woman a dog. Um, though then she kind of shamed him, and he kind of was like, "Oh yeah, I guess." Even the dogs do eat the crumbs, and I feel bad now. But uh, the Jesus right. of the Gospels, like, there's no way he's sinless. That's bullshit. No, no. Oh, but the yeah, no. but the thing is, he would have had a problem with his statement. Uh, probably. I mean, you know, the Jesus of the Gospels bracketing the historical Jesus. I suppose so. But I still think that guy had an authoritarian streak, and he totally, <laughs> oh, yeah, and he totally yeah. could have gone in a Jim Jones direction given enough time. Sign in happiness, kids. <laughs> right. Okay, so the next point. Culture. What is your culture? We affirm that some cultures operate on assumptions that are inherently better than those of other cultures because of the biblical truths that inform those worldviews that have produced these distinct assumptions. Wait, so white supremacy is biblical, basically. I mean, European civilization is just objectively Christian, so it's better. It's not, you know, it's not because Europeans deserved it. It's just because they believed. Like, America is the new Israel, God's city on a hill, (laughs) they're the 13th tribe. It's fine, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Those elements of a given culture that reflect divine revelation should be celebrated and promoted. So, like, wear a sombrero for Cinco de Mayo. Okay, put that part in. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) But the various cultures out of which we have been called all have features that are worldly and sinful, and therefore those sin- Like premarital (laughs) sex? Yeah, and not wearing clothes sometimes. Oh, tits. We're so scared of tits. (laughs) And therefore those sinful features should be repudiated for the honor of Christ. We affirm that whatever evil influences to which we've been subjected via our culture can be and must be 
overcome through conversion and the training of both mind and heart through biblical truth. So basically, uh, colonialist British Empire is the ideal we should all be striving for. I mean, there's a reason that Justin Peters calls uh, the former, you know, uh, police terrorist, anti-terrorist unit Rhodesian guy, his African-American friend. <laughs> this man is white. Let us just like emphasize this point. This man is white. Right. Okay. We deny that individuals and subgroups in any culture are unable by God's grace to rise above whatever moral defects or spiritual deficiencies that have been engendered or encouraged by their respective cultures. It's like they all have iron deficiencies or something. See, if you, if, uh, you know, Rhodesia had just been allowed to keep being Rhodesia, all those white Christians there would finally have converted all those black communists. Yeah, those communists, they're trouble. You know, it also, I think that, like, also, if we just give the Salvation Army enough clothes and then give it to missionary groups, then, you know, nobody will be nude in the equatorial regions. And because climate change isn't real, none of us are going to be suffering from heat anyway. And uh, clothes are totally, like, morally the high ground. Those are very important. People could stumble. Can you imagine the damage to people's purity. I mean, <laughs> nobody wants to go to hell. The real party's there. I don't know. I, I think mean, it sounds a lot better than heaven from what I've read. Um, okay, so like evil influences, we have been subjected via our culture, like spiritual deficiencies, moral defects. Like we've all been joking about these things, but like, can you bring to mind anything politically relevant like that they might be talking about like what are they referring to i mean a lot of it like they think that people who have abortions are morally deficient they think that queer people are morally deficient they think that trans people are morally deficient anyone who deviates from their like cis heteronormative very evangelical Christian ideal. Oh, so this is opening is like, the door for people like Mary Pride who are ex-feminists to come into the fold. Yes. Because okay. if you're willing to drop all of that, then, you know, fine. But you have to be, you know, chaste and celibate and never, you know, be queer or anything. Okay. Yeah, um, she actually wrote that you know, there's no justification for the state ever taking anyone's children's children away. No Mary matter, Pride? yeah, whether abuse is present or not. Oh my God! Wait, Mary Pride is returning to her feminist roots. <laughs> Let me clutch my pearls. Oh no, I left them at my husband's house a long time ago. <laughs> oh no, what are you gonna do? <laughs> what? I don't know. Um, that's. That's interesting. It's it's funny because I think the the border crisis with the children being kept in cages is something that preys on the heartstrings of the women who have been advocating for pro life measures for a long time, and so it's going to rub evangelical women the wrong way. I think that given the like well established. Um, trends of complementarianism and submission that they'll be shut up but it's yeah. good that they care i think <laughs> yeah. 
They don't really care. Just to say. It just makes them feel uncomfy. Yeah. Okay. Racism. We affirm that racism is a sin rooted in pride and malice and must be condemned and renounced by all who would honor the image of God in all people. Such racial sin can subtly or overtly manifest itself as racial animosity or racial vainglory. What? I'm just going to make a face at that word. Racial vainglory. Um, Is that a real word? Vainglory is a... No, it's a a great word, but like... (laughs) They're not referring like, they're not referring to Nazis with racial vainglory and they should be. Yeah, I mean, I do not think it means what they think it means. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that's not the correct I don't think they're using it right. Okay. Such sinful prejudice or partiality falls short of God's revealed will and violates the royal rule of law. Or law Wait. of love, sorry. Um <laughs> we <laughs> affirm that Virtually all cultures, including our own, at times contain laws and systems that foster racist attitudes and policies. Yeah, sometimes black people are angry at white people. That's totally part of our culture. But, like, that's not anything that we have to do with, and we're not responsible for it. And, like, the history of this country has nothing to do with it. And, like, everything's fine racially because you guys can fucking vote. So, like, shut up. (laughs) That's definitely the subtext that I read in there. Yeah. Yeah, that's the subtext I get, too. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's this way. (laughs) We know we suck sometimes. Shush. So it's it's basically sloughing off the systemic history of racism onto, um, like, human fallibility. And just saying, like, yeah, but wouldn't you guys have done this, too? Wait, what is the systemic of what you speak, Hannah? How do you know it's in everybody's heart? I don't know it's in everybody's heart, but I know every cop believes in it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We deny that treating people with sinful partiality or prejudice is consistent with biblical Christianity. We deny that only those in positions of power are capable of racism, or that individuals of any particular ethnic group are incapable of racism. We deny that systemic racism is in any way compatible with the core (coughs) principles of historical evangelical convictions. (laughs) Sorry, no, please go on. I I mean, they're writing the jokes, not me. We deny that the Bible can be legitimately used to foster or justify partiality, prejudice, or contempt toward other ethnicities. We deny that the contemporary evangelical movement has any deliberate agenda to elevate one ethnic group and subjugate another. What? Well, right, because it's not ethnic, it's religious. Because we have Vadi Bakum. Black people are all leaving their churches because they voted for Donald Trump. We have Vadi Bakum and Ben Carson. It's fine. Right? It's fine. Um, They're not in the sunken place at all. We emphatically deny that lectures on social issues or activism aimed at reshaping the wider culture are as vital to the life and health of the church as the preaching of the gospel and exposition of scripture. Okay, that's fucking hilarious because they're always like, the culture, you guys, the culture, we have to change the culture. But also, what does that have to do with race? (laughs) This entire, like, two sentences is 
just them being angry at social justice. Look, I just really want to have the emails that led up to this statement be, like, leaked somewhere. Because this sentence is clearly throwing shade at something specific that happened behind closed doors. Yes, that entire section. All right, the next sentence. Historically, such things tend to become... What? Distractions <laughs> that inevitably lead to departures from the gospel and all millennials leaving the church because you're hypocrites. Woohoo! Distractions. I'm a millennial, but hey. Okay. Re- represent, <laughs> I guess. Um, okay. Break this down. I mean, we sort of we sort of started to, but like this is really, this is really the point of this entire thing. Like this was just leading up to here. It's getting increase increasingly shitty and increasingly explicit, right? I mean, now they're like systemic racism is not a thing. Go away. This is the meat in the sandwich. Right. <laughs> yeah, this is. We found the lead. It was slightly buried. It's only 13 sections into a 15 sec, 14 sections into a 16 section thing. Well, the next two is like an appendix. <laughs> no, an addendum. Sorry. And then history and information by Tom Askell. Oh, yeah. Which uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't really care what he has to say. <laughs> but what but does you guys, he have to say? He met with 13 men in a coffee shop. Yeah, this well, I mean, no, 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 not 13, sorry, 14 men in a in Herb's house coffee shop in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> this is the second communion. The second Last Supper? Second Last Supper. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're all going to die on this This hill is the one right before the apocalypse, the but they think the tribulation is coming next. <laughs> yeah. But, oh my God, so, yeah. They're basically just like, um, one, we think that basically stop calling us racist. (laughs) We're not racist. Stop calling us racist is basically what this can be summarized into. (laughs) Sure, we we think systemic racism is not compatible with the gospel, but that doesn't exist. So it's fine. Sure, we think that, like, abuse is not compatible with the gospel, but it can exist. So, like, it's fine. Right. If such a thing would happen, if such a thing were to happen in our midst, we would clearly (laughs) stand up for it. But the people speaking out are the problem. The people speaking out are angry, and anger is a sin. (laughs) It's kind of an old trick. And bitterness is the worst sin. And, And like, can you really trust anything anyone says when they're angry and bitter? Except all sins are also equal, so therefore your anger cancels out my abuse. Emily, what were you going to (laughs) say? I was just going to say, it's such an old trick to say that the people who are talking about their pain are the people who are causing pain. Like, you like step on someone, and then when they complain about it, you're like, well, it was peaceful here until you said something. That's, yeah, that's you, exactly the what's same happening. Thing, the, whole, the whole page is just like, I mean, I don't care what their intentions are at this point. Like, it's just a mass gaslighting and then saying like, and if we addressed the fact that you're hurting, it would be a distraction for the church. Old white douches are unoriginal. Like, very wow. So surprised. This is my shocked face. <laughs> All right. So we have we have gone through this whole thing. And I think it's interesting that they put that racism 
bit at the end. I mean, it's clearly the like thrust of this entire thing. Um, and they're clearly counting on people to read through the like the first five sections of it and be like, well, all my friends are signing, so I'm going to sign too because like I got to <laughs> take a stand for yeah, the church because we are the, the most worst per- stuff is buried. We are the most persecuted group in America, so I'm going to post this on Facebook and get people <laughs> to sign, and like nobody reads through it. Yeah, who's going to read all those walls of context? text? Just, like, sign because it's cool, because all your friends are doing right. it. Only people and who And then the people who, like, do read all the way through and sign are, like, the ones that were already there to begin with. Has anybody um, recognized anyone who signed it? I keep searching for my parents. <laughs> I haven't seen them yet. I keep searching for various exes. Nobody signed it yet, which is good. I recognize I like That means that it had an influence. I recognized Biggest Dickus. And, uh, who, is, who is Biggest Dickus? <laughs> no, I mean, I, some of these troll signatures Lucifer, are, Didn't are, Lucifer Dawnbringer also sign it? Uh, and uh, y'all are gay. And, uh, <laughs> and then huge erection? Yeah. <laughs> um, we don't necessarily endorse troll signing this. I do. But we're not going to say anything if you do. <laughs> oh, my God. But no, I did not recognize anyone that I actually know so far. Okay. That's, that, I guess that's a mercy of some kind. <laughs> and it seems to have topped out at 4740 so far. This morning when I was checking it, I was checking it in math and like it was still going up like every time I refreshed and I was Guys, horrified. The village I lived in in Kyrgyzstan was like 9,000 people. <laughs> That's so oh few people. They seem yeah. to have deleted a lot of the troll signatures as well. So I think Aww. they kind of got on uh, top of that. <laughs> okay, so I mean, let's... I guess it was on the internet for like a day. <laughs> they um, learned. Let's 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 turn to this from a different perspective. I know a lot of like me, Karen, and Chris are all like post Christian in our experiences of spirituality and our ourselves in the world i'm chris emily you're still a christian reading this what does this make you feel how do you respond to this um what do you wish um people knew about your faith and um the statement well it's interesting timing isn't it like um it's finally starting to become sort of um unfashionable to um, sidestep issues of social justice in evangelical circles. And I, I, I don't know, I can't guess at people's intentions exactly, but um, it's, it's interesting that they're pivoting from defense to offense and saying not just that we're, it's okay that we're not addressing people's pain, but we're actually better Christians for it. So that is um, unsurprising, but disheartening. Um, How- Good to see that it, there aren't that many people signing on to this one, I guess. Yeah. How do you see this connecting with the Trump administration right now and Pence's role in it and like his, um, his position as a conservative Christian who is supposedly like with high morals? Well, I think that this piece is, um, I mean, it's it seems respectable, right? Like they went through all of these like... Um, pretty basic this format of giving like we the affirmations and the denials it's just kind of walking your way through it and getting people ready and then just like dropping this bomb at the end but the whole way through just having 
it's just a respectable version of the same kind of thing that's been simmering here for what centuries, mm -hmm. right? Um, so if you can if you can say a horrible thing nicely, it's okay. Right? Do you think this is a statement that um, many of your friends or people in your community would sign or even consider signing? Do you think they know the difference? Can they see through it? I hope so. That's a good question. It depends. I'm sort of straddling a lot of worlds right now, you know. Um, so I, I think that some of them would see this. The same people who would see, say, colorblindness as um, the best posture to take would possibly sign on to something like this, saying, like, we're all equal. And so, therefore, your differing experience is irrelevant or untrue or can be dismissed or should be dismissed so that we can be equals, right? Right. Yeah. It's like you have to defend the illusion in order to, like, preserve an image of relative peacefulness for you, right? So peacefulness seems to be the the thing that they value and i think that i think the right. what this is the statement seems to be reacting to is a lot of anger on mm -hmm. the behalf of oppressed minorities in the church who ha are like starting to talk about their experiences um and the church like in my experience seems to be allergic to anger um right. and so is that is that your experience too do you feel like that that's that's true to what you see yeah it's interesting so a lot of people are sort of neutral to um like my work and what i talk about it because i kind of like came out of the womb like having a problem with everything and <laughs> fixing things so it's kind of like caring an inordinate amount apparently is like my mo mm -hmm. so most of the most people can like brush me off until i start like naming instances of injustice or like daring to suggest that like maybe something that you do could make life better for somebody else and maybe you're supposed to do that let thing. me just and and then that becomes difficult let me contextualize emily for a second here for everybody um one of my first <laughs> internships during college was for crosswalk.com um i was helping manage some of their back-end media staff and they were looking for people to write book reviews and articles and there was this one book that I forget who wrote it, but it was a little, it was a short little book about social justice and the, being a Christian. And you know, I think it was Everyday Justice. Yeah, I, I think, think it, was, it was for the quad. Actually. Yeah, it was Everyday Justice. And and the mm -hmm. one thing that she talked about, she talked about three or four different things, but one of them was about how like all of these chocolate companies are employing child slaves. And that's fairly commonly known in your more liberal circles. Um, but, like, what homeschool evangelical mom is going to, like, stop buying Nestle at Costco? Yeah. Um, no. And I was, like, looking for someone to do a review of this book because I was assigned to. And I was like, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> Emily is the person who's going to be appropriately angry about this to write this review to like talk about this yeah and i feel like that's kind of like going back to what you were saying about like how it can kind of seem reasonable to some people at least like in the first part i think that's what's so insidious about it is they put all of the like more kind of reasonable seeming stuff out in the front and like if you don't already know 
it seems reasonable and pretty straightforward if you're coming at it from a perspective of like being reasonable if you, if you come at it from a perspective of being a reasonable person you're like well sure yeah like race doesn't matter i love you equally it's fine and it Kieran, seems embracing but it's not like the version of us that signed the like whole modesty survey agreement yeah. like would yeah. have signed this we would have signed right. this at 15 and 16 for right, because sure. it seemed like we were saying, yeah, like, you have experiences, but, like, we're all the same when it comes to God. But what it's actually saying is different. And what we also thought we were saying about that in particular was, like, you shouldn't be sexualizing us. And, like, modesty right. is important, but it's also your responsibility, but that's not what it was saying at all. And so, right. and so like, this, beca- it's, again, that, like, you get these, like, moments of convoluted logic and language that... If you look at one piece of it, you would totally agree with it, but you have to read the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And if you're just skimming it, you're just going to sign on and not even think about it. It's remarkable yeah. how explicit it does get by the end, but it really takes some time to build up to that. It's also remarkable to be to me how little they directly reference scripture. I mean, they've got all those scripture references on the bottom that you can go look up, right? But like mostly they're not it's 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 but what like actual theologian would affirm that those scriptures mean the things that they're like connecting them to like those are not uh, real footnotes rc sproul just yeah i guess i don't think i you know in my experience rc sproul doesn't exist (laughs) it's fine no um okay so Emily, when you talk about your your job with other Christians, um, you when you tell them you work with development for NGOs and you you talk about these social issues, social justice issues that you're so passionate about, what kind of response do you get? Is the like the the defensive tone of the statement makes me assume that everybody in the church is just like walking on eggshells around people who care about social justice. Is that your experience? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, there are some things I feel uncomfortable talking about, or I think that... Can you define neutrality? Like you mentioned, like neutrality seems to be the goal. Like like I said earlier, right. So it's like a... um, It's the commitment to not knowing, right? So I can sort of allude to kind of a problem that I'm addressing at work, but if I get really specific or I implicate that some a decision they're make like they're making like buying Costco chocolate mm-hmm. or um supporting say policies that would deny healthcare to poor people. Or like trying um, to make your church facility sort of when, like accessible to disabled people. Yeah. Right. Right. So those kinds of um you start to get pushed back as soon as you start suggesting that you should actually be doing something, um, which is odd because I mean, this sort of exactly what this statement is lining up, isn't it though, that yes, these things are problems, but if we were to do something about it, it would be distracting from the real work or like the, not even work, the status of being a believer. Right. I feel like that's even like the most benign way to interpret it. And a less benign or generous reading would be, these problems are all coming from those other people, not us. Right. Yeah, it is interesting because it is kind of victim blamey where it's like, yeah, for sure. well, the people who are like bringing attention to these really should not be. It's sort of the implication in some places. Hashtag okay. how to evangelical. <laughs> 
So it, assuming that you're a Christian who thinks, who takes beef with a statement and thinks that social justice issues are valuable, what would you recommend they do to educate themselves, to become aware, to counteract the statement, to counterbalance the statement? Um, what would you say to people who want to care but see this going around in their communities and don't know what to say? Right. I kind of ask myself that every day with some form of this. Um, so sometimes when these statements are released, there's a counter statement by church leaders who disagree. But the thing about a statement like this is that it's anti-social justice. So the people who are going to disagree with it are like already out there disagreeing like, by being busy doing social justice things. So I'm not sure whether to expect a formal response in that sense. But I mean, it sounds simple, but like, just keep making noise, like, um, figure out, I mean, you can be angry and you can be a rebel and you can figure out what kind of approach works with, um, your people, try to figure out how to be a good advocate and ally. But I do think that a lot of people watching a lot of Christian people, possibly younger people predominantly are, um, they do sense that something's wrong. They're seeing it and they just, they need information. They need someone else to, um, to stand up and say no to these kinds of things. And they need to, they need to start learning, right? Like follow, follow, subscribe to newsletters by marginalized people and follow people on Instagram and don't say anything for like three to 12 months, you know, just like listen for a while like and follow get plugged into Twitter and listen. Yes. <laughs> and, and then yes. And don't say anything. I um, will just, just follow up on that with like a comment for our mm -hmm. Our listeners who grew up evangelical, we've been trained to see anger as something to be afraid of and something that's toxic and right. dangerous. And from my own experience, I love anger so much <laughs> as an emotion. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's one of my most controlled emotions. But the, the reason I love anger is because it's, it's the canary in a coal mine. It's a moment yes. when I get angry and I don't know why. I need to examine why. Um, in psychological terms, it's a secondary emotion. It means that it's covering up for some other emotion that I've been ignoring. And so when I'm angry about something, I need to examine why. And usually it's a signal to protect myself. It's a signal to get safe. It's a signal to um, that something's wrong and I need to pay attention. And so if you are feeling angry about this statement, if you're like experiencing anger about how your church is responding to social justice issues, listen to that. Like trust your gut there. Go beyond the anger and look at the underlying emotions. What are you afraid of? What are you, what are you protective of? Um, what are you feeling? And listen to that and examine that. Yeah, anger, conflict, doubt, all the, all those things you're supposed to press down in evangelical subculture, right? Conflict is supposed to be avoided at all costs. Uh, doubt is an immediate threat to your entire identity and ego. Um, and it's going to be a source of conflict if you talk about it. So you don't talk about it. And you pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah. Right. And that makes you incapable of holding any space for someone else's anger I talk to a lot of people who, white people, who when they finally realize what's been happening in front of them, um, they feel that anger and that grief and they just, they ask me how to get rid of it. Like how to just like, <laughs> stiffen it off. 
I'm like, no, like this is like you, your first step. Like you were like just beginning this like nascent step. This is, this is the raid siren. You have to sit with this it. This is the raid yeah. siren. You have to respond. Yeah. Right. But, but you're right. If you don't know what to do with anger or grief or it's it's terrifying because you don't have coping mechanisms. The right, church doesn't give space even for hold it. space for your own. No. no. So it's and hard. I think that's what the statement is really about. Like this, this is a way for the evangelical church to see the grief and anger of the people who have been hurt within the church who really want to stay in the church and are talking to their leaders and are asking for help and support. And this is their way of shutting them down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is their way of doubling right. down on all of the oppressions that have hurt these people. And so if you are someone who is responding to the statement by trying to get the help from your leaders, like look at the power differentials, look at the money, look at what you're not allowed to talk about and get the hell out of there if they're not listening to you because your experiences are valid. Hashtag empty the pews. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's exactly right. you know, this is the, the moment of church too. It's a moment of pretty intense confrontation. I mean, we've been using hashtag campaigns like empty the pews in church to, to draw attention to abuses in evangelicalism. Uh, it's also a moment in which there have been a number of reports of African-Americans uh, leaving predominantly white churches or churches with white pastors when they get shut down, wanting to talk about racism and wanting to talk about how they feel about all these white evangelicals supporting Donald Trump. Um, and they don't, of course, want to have to face any of that. So they produce statements like this, which right. Justin Peters would like to remind us. He didn't want to do it. He had to. We made him. Yeah. For the gospel. We made him by existing. <laughs> really? Yeah. And he forced his hand on it. This is this is part of why I'm just going out on a limb here. Like people like Emily, who have like a heritage of Anabaptist roots, like the Anabaptists, like, were founded in protest to oppression. Um, there have been some bad actors like Yoder in these groups, but, like, their heritage is, like, civil disobedience and, like, passive unrest and, like, resisting um, abuses of authority. And so these are the people we need to be looking to. These are the heritages that we have in the church that if we want to look for examples, historical examples of how to resist oppression and how to um, act well as Christians, like these examples exist. You just need to look for them. But people like the Southern Baptist church that doubled down on racism and that's why they exist are not the places to look for that. God, no. I think that's what makes me the most angry as, like, a former Christian is, like, seeing this still happen and seeing people sign things like this that are just, like, objectively racist, objectively against queer people. Like, just, it it gets really obvious. And that is just not representative of what I understood Jesus to be. And it makes me really angry. Even though, like, I'm not a Christian anymore, it still makes me angry. Yeah, I mean, you know, I tried, I I also tried uh, arguing for a more inclusive, progressive Christianity from the inside, right? Because that's how Jesus also seemed to me. 
But now I'm like, Jesus could have been Jim Jones. <laughs> I, right. That's I, the other thing, too. Like, I I tried to, if you look at the, the records of my old blog, Wine and Marble, like, I tried to stay within the faith. And I still think that there's a, there's a possible feminist interpretation of the scriptures. Just... I love the queer Christians who Luminous, are doing queer Christian things. I don't. Yeah, queer liberation theology. theology. Yeah. yeah, there's there is there is a legitimate, um, like academic canon of work for people who are trying to incorporate these kinds of ideas, um, and trying to decolonize the church. It's possible, but it's really, really hard, and I really just didn't have the like mental health spoons to keep doing. That I mean, work. Cert- I certainly coming from everyone a typical... who's doing that work, but I cannot. Same. Sorry, you both said the same yeah. thing at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, when I watched um, the the liturgy for Reverend Pinckney, who was um, you know gunned down by Dylan Roof, and um, we watched this expression of black Christianity. I mean, that was a beautiful and very moving thing. Um, so, you know, when you see that kind of Christianity, I mean, it's really, it's impressive. It's possible. It really is possible. Like there are so many marvelous liberal theologians who have set an example for like social justice activism to exist within the faith, in the faith context. And, it's just it's just so disappointing to me to see um people doubling down on like the literal interpretation of scripture mm-hmm. as the limiting point to their ability to bring in other people to the faith like that's like where this all starts is like the interpreting the bible literally as opposed to using higher criticism seeing it as a historical document um these arguments have been happening since, like, the end of the Renaissance. Like, this is not new stuff. And we're still debating about it and still using it to justify racism and still using it to justify oppression of minorities. And I'm sorry, but a lot has happened in the world since then. Can we just, like, right. get our shit together? Well, St. Augustine, who was a complete asshole and really obsessed with sex... You know, yes. didn't didn't even believe that the seven days of creation were seven literal days. You know, that is like, a fundamentalist response to modernity. Yeah. And, and this gets back to the original point, the ahistorical nature of American Christianity, where it thinks that it's privileged enough to exist within a vacuum and it doesn't have to reference history or pitfalls in the church before them or anyone who might come after them and use a like abuses the theology of the priesthood of the believer to just consider themselves and their individual actions and like abstain from participating in any larger movements or any um larger concerns in terms of oppression or bias or privilege um, it's really toxic and it's just going to hurt. I mean, it is hurting the church and it's going to continue hurting mm-hmm. the church. And this is why people like us are leaving the church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, yep. when it comes to trying to do uh, justice from with within the church, personally, I just got really burnt out 
on having to couch everything in theological language when really we should just be able to appeal to our common fundamental humanity. I was happy to couch everything in theological language, (laughs) but they wouldn't listen to me from the get because I was a woman. Yeah, well, I mean, they didn't listen to me either, but obviously, (laughs) uh, you know, they were more likely to uh, (laughs) because I was read as male. The odds were good, but the goods were odd. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's always, uh, yeah, well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm going to credit my my younger sister for that phrase. And um, thank you guys for all joining us. Uh, I know this has gone long. I know you guys have listened through a lot. Um. It's a slog, and this is a deep dive. And um, thank you, Emily and Chris, for your time. Thank, and hopefully, um, we'll be able to have you guys back at some point. Hannah. It was so good having you on. It was great. Uh, thanks, Karen. Thanks, Hannah. I really enjoyed uh, joining you all tonight. And um, thank you as well, Emily. For uh, it was nice to connect with all of you. So uh, yeah. Thanks, everybody. Check out our podcast next week. Join us on Patreon. Like, subscribe, all the things. Kieran and I will be following up on their paper and talking about educational neglect and homeschooling. It should be exciting. All right. Bye.